All right, gang, let's turn to Exodus chapter 13. Lord, we pray that you'd speak to our hearts as we study your word, that we'd receive, as Aaron already prayed, everything you have for us, Lord, that our hearts would be receptive. I know it's been a long day, maybe even a long week for some of us already, and um, this is a place of rest, and um, we've sang songs to you, we've worshiped you, and uh, our, our heart is now prepped and ready to receive the seed of your word. We're also maybe a little tired too, and that's okay. Uh, you give your beloved rest, and that's why we come, to sit at your feet and find rest. And so we pray that we'd receive that tonight, everything, including the kids, that they'd have a place of rest. The teachers, as they pour out their hearts to these kids, the lesson plans that they prepared, I pray that that would go well also. And just keep your hand upon this entire night, in Jesus' name, amen. This Sunday, after second service at 1.30, we'll meet out at Mazingo for our baptism. Uh, we've changed some things around, um, and so we're going to be doing it at Mazingo instead of at the pool. Uh, but that'll be this Sunday. We've got three. And so if you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior and you've never been water baptized and you want to do that, um, we'd love to baptize you. There's no uh, test you need to do or uh, any hoops you have to jump through. You just, uh, I, I'd like to know, but you don't have to. If you decide on the spot, stand, standing there on the beach that you want to get baptized, come on down. Uh, we'd love to have you. But there's three so far, and uh, encourage you to come out for that. I'd encourage you to come out for that and support them also. If you're not being baptized, I mean, uh, this is why we do what we do. People are getting saved. People are coming to know Jesus, and they're dedicating their lives to, to the Lord, and they're going to go down and publicly profess their faith and get water baptized in front of everybody, you know. Uh, it's nice to have that support. So I'd encourage you, if, you, if you've been baptized and you're a believer, to come out and support them and be there for them and uh, cheer them on. As heaven is rejoicing, so can we uh, here on earth. Um, chapter 13 is a wonderful chapter. It's a short one. I've been going long lately, so I figured, you know what, let's just see how far we get. We may be done early. Now, we may have to hang out a little bit because uh, the teachers have their lesson plan and they have to go and get their things done and crafts have to be done and, and so on. So we may stick around a little bit, but I didn't want to jump into 14. 14's a, a study in and of itself with the parting of the Red Sea and the crossing over, um, which is very symbolic, by the way, of water baptism. Um, but I wanted to save that. There's, there was enough here in chapter 13 that I thought we needed to just really hang out here for a while. God in this chapter gives the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, two things to remember the event that just took place. I'm, I'm, he's going to give them the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and he's also going to give them the, the sanctification of the firstborn. And those two things he wants them to do forever. Every single year, he wants them to celebrate this to remember what just happened in Egypt. Now, remember, Egypt represents the world the nation of Israel somewhat represents us, and Moses, the deliverer, represents Christ. And as he's come in, and the firstborn, the tenth plague has taken place, and the firstborn has died, Egypt, and the ruler of Egypt, Pharaoh, who represents Satan, has to let the people go, is obligated to let them go, forces them out, may change his mind, may go after them later on, but is going to let the deliverer take them. You can see the similarities to our walk with Jesus then. 
As Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, we realize it. We're released from Satan, from the world and the bondage and everything, and we walk out orderly. Now, Satan may come and attack us later on, but he doesn't want us to ever forget the strong arm by which he's delivered us. He doesn't want the nation of Israel to forget the strong arm because it's going to be needed later on. Just like in our walk with Jesus, we're going to need to remember what he took us from. I was going over that in my mind the first 19 years of my life, and I'm not going to share it with you. It's between me and God, but what a disaster that was. A lot of good memories, a lot of wonderful childhood memories, but I can see that little turkey grow up, me, and see the changes and the bossiness and the rebellion and the disobedience, and it just built upon itself until finally it, well, it bloomed a horrible bloom in my life throughout high school until I came to the place where I knew I needed a savior for my sins. I needed someone to pay the penalty for the things I did to separate me from God. And I think about that and I remind myself of that. Not that I boast in my sin. I don't want to be that kind of guy that talks about my sin and I was a bigger sinner than you, you know, and smile about it. it it's nothing to compare But it does keep me in that place of reminding myself of, if he can do that, he can certainly handle what's in front of me. And that's why we have remembering. We remember what God's done for us, so we understand that he can do for us now and in the future. Verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. Consecrate simply means to set apart for him. Now, at this time in all the world, uh, to have a God say that those are mine meant you'd have to kill those things and give them to them. Now, And they would do that with their children also, but that's not what God means here. I want you to set them apart for me. They're mine. As an annual reminder, every time these things are born, I want them to be mine. I want you to remember that. And here, there's a reason for it. And Moses said to all the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Seems like a funny thing to add to that sentence. Don't forget how strong God's arm is, so no leavened bread. How do those two things connect? Well, let me run through some cross-references. Leaven is very symbolic. The idea of the unleavened bread here is it was speed. We need to get out of here quickly. We don't have time to put the yeast in or the leaven in and let that bread rise like we would normally have nice, fluffy, tasty bread. Tracy Barnes did such a great job teaching that at the camp. But we need to get out of here in a hurry, and so leave the leaven out. We're just going to bake it as is, and it was flat, you know, but still kind of tasty. You should have seen the kids eat their leavened bread that they made for, or unleavened bread that they made for camp. They're putting butter and sugar on this is great, and they're walking around with these giant flat pieces. I, I just got a kick out of that. They'll never forget that teaching, by the way, ever. It's wonderful because of the object lesson that it attached that they attached to it. And so you get the idea. It's in haste. Make sure you have your loins girded, your your staff in hand, and your unleavened bread because you didn't have time. And remember that. And so I want you to have a feast about unleavened bread. Now, leaven later on 
is used as an object lesson by Jesus. Jesus always taught and gave an object lesson. That's why we do it so much. It's not just for kids. He did it for adults too. Behold the sower. You can see all 5,000 of them go, oh, yeah, there's a sower. You know, just like kids do. Oh, and see how he's scattering the seed? Yeah, I see that. See how some of it's falling on rocky soil? It is falling on rocky soil. All these adults, you know, digging in. They'll never forget that teaching, and neither do we. So he uses leaven in other ways. In Matthew 13, he describes leaven as something that's bad, okay? Leaven is bad. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Some people misunderstand that and think, well, that was good. That was sneaky. Get the kingdom of God is like leaven. No, 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 no. The kingdom of God is supposed to be flat. It's supposed to be without leaven. It's supposed to be like this picture we're reading in Exodus. The fact that there's leaven in it, the fact that this woman came in and snuck it in and leavened everything... What woman sneaks yeast into bread, except someone who's deceitful, okay? So keep that in mind as we walk through these cross-references. This is a bad thing that leaven has entered the kingdom of heaven. It's a bad thing. Leaven represents sin. Matthew 16, verses 5 through 12. It's a long one. Now, when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Oops. Then Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And actually in Mark, he adds, and Herod. So watch out for that leaven. Well, these guys ain't exactly filled with the Spirit yet. So they think physically, which is one of our problems as Christians. But we'll go over that tonight. Verse 7, they reasoned among themselves saying, it is because we have taken no bread. He's, in a sideways way, rebuking us for not bringing bread. Don't forget the leaven of the Pharisees. Oh, bread. No, that's not what I was saying. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you've not because you've brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves or the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood. He did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It was bad doctrine. Watch out for bad doctrine, Jesus says. Don't let the bad doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees enter in. He calls it leaven. You have to be very careful that we need to be spiritually minded as Christians. Spiritually minded, not physically minded all the time. Reasoning amongst ourselves as to why this can't happen or that can't happen because that doesn't make sense or it's not time for that. It's, no, we need to be spiritually minded. This leaven later on shows up in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. Paul, who started that church in Corinth, has to write them a letter and tell them, you've got leaven in your church. You've got sin in your church. Now, not just any sin. This is unrepentant sin. This is sin that they're proud of. They boast about it. They're puffed up. They tell other people about the sin they have, but they don't understand that it's sin. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, exclamation point. What are you guys doing? 
And you were puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present. Him who has done so this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying, they were proud of this sin, is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? That sin, boasted about and gone unchecked, is going to infiltrate the entire body of Christ and change it. It's going to cause others to sin. It's going to spread. That's what it does. Leaven rots hate to ruin bread for you, but that's what those bubbles are, rotting bubbles. You put that leaven in there and it begins to rot everything and begins to make everything bubble and boil and curdle and bad things are happening, but it makes it fluffy. Until you put it in the oven and you apply a certain amount of heat, which stops the process, you see. Paul's saying, what are you doing he says, therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. In other words, I know you're sinless because of Christ, and yet you have this leaven amongst you that you're boasting about. That shouldn't be. Now, it's not that the kid is, not that the church, and be careful about this, has to kick everybody out that's sinning. Guess what? None of us would be here. We'd all have to leave. And then we'd have a pure church if we'd all get out of here, you know? Boy, look at that. That's a nice church over there, you know? Nobody's in it. No, it's sin that we boast about. That's okay. That's great. We're progressive in our beliefs. We don't think that's sin. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. And all of a sudden, well, if that's okay, then this is okay. And if this is okay, then that's okay. And it spreads. And all of a sudden, the whole church is full of sin. It's like, no, 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 no. This is a place when you come to Christ, first of all, you realize you need a Savior from your sins. So those can't ever change. Otherwise, we don't need a Savior anymore. This is basic stuff, Christianity 101. If I don't have sin anymore, if everything's okay, then Christ didn't need to die because I don't need a Savior, and I'm going to heaven because nothing I do is wrong. Hold up. Christ saved us from our past sins. He's saving us from our current sins, leading us, conforming us into his image until finally we're perfected when we die and we're in heaven with Christ. We died with Christ. We rise with Christ. That's the idea. If anywhere along that line we decide that sin isn't an issue, we let this leaven leaven the whole lump, then that makes Christ in the cross void and worthless. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Just be honest with yourselves. Call sin, sin. Your whole life calls sin, sin. It's okay. Nobody expected you to be perfect when you got, I was definitely not perfect at the age of 19. I am definitely not perfect at the age of 50. I know I don't look it. 
I'm going to be that way until I'm 90, until I'm dead, or whenever God decides to take me home, that's when I'm going to be perfected. And I'm looking forward to that day when sin doesn't follow me around anymore, when that old man, that temptation that seems to be my shadow wherever I go is just no longer there. I'm looking forward to that day. Galatians 5, 1 through 12, Paul writes to the Galatians, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage, sin. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify against to every, again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. In other words, if you think circumcision betters your salvation then we've got bigger issues here because now the whole law then betters your salvation. You better be keeping all of it. This is the law of love is what he's getting at here. The first few cross-references were leaven being hypocrisy. This is the leaven of law that can come into our lives. We begin to become self-righteous. I'm circumcised. You're not circumcised. You know, Timothy was one thing. Silas was another. Timothy needed to be circumcised so that the Jews, because he was half Jew, could receive from him because they knew he was a Jew. And so that was a stumbling block because he was Jewish on his dad's side. And so he needed to be circumcised to continue sharing the gospel for people to receive, not because he needed it for salvation or to better his salvation, but because it was in the way. Silas, on the other hand, didn't need to be circumcised, because he was all Greek. And it wasn't a hindrance, and nobody expected him to be circumcised. It wasn't something that would keep him from sharing the gospel. Paul here writes to the Galatians, you guys aren't even Jews. What are you doing getting circumcised? It has nothing to do with you. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised, he's a debtor to keep the whole law. You become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. Ever heard that term used? Oh, they've fallen from grace. We usually mean backsliding. You know, They've walked away from the Lord. They're back in the world again. They've gone back to Egypt. That's not what it means. It means you're going to church more than ever. And you're boasting about it. It means that you're uh, reading your Bible more than ever, showing off, oh, oh, I didn't mean my Bible plan to slip out of my Bible with all the check marks on how many days I've been perfect this year. Reading. You become estranged from Christ. In other words, you have no longer count your salvation as grace given to you. You count it as works. Look at me. Look at me. You become estranged from Christ. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working in love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? That's a great question. I guarantee if you just read your Bible and your Bible only, you'll never get bad doctrine. Ever. The Holy Spirit is your teacher. This is his sword. You and the Word of God and the Holy Spirit will never get bad doctrine, ever. You may get weird once in a while as you read one verse, and you're not to the rest of it that explains it. That can happen sometimes. It says right here, Jesus wept, so we need to cry all the time. No, no, no. Keep reading. 
He was a man equated with grief and sorrow, so I need to be sorrowful my whole life. But it also said he was the gladdest man that ever lived. Oh, and as you go through the entire word of God, your doctrine will build upon itself and become solid and strong. It's only when we bring in these other books. Not that they're all bad, but boy, be careful. That's all I can tell you. That's why he says this. You were running really, really well with the Lord. Who hindered you? Because you didn't get it from me, and you certainly didn't get it from God. Well, these guys came in, and they said, you got to be circumcised. We said, well, yeah, that makes sense. So we did, sore for a couple days, but boy, we feel really holy now. And that's what the law will do. It'll make you feel holier than other people, temporarily. It's always followed by guilt. It's always followed by shame. It's always followed by defeat. It's always followed by performance. I need to do better. I'm never going to achieve. I'm never going to gain. I'm never getting ahead. I'm so far behind. Look how holy they are. Look how worthless I am. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven, that little bit of law, leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, that he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. Now Paul's getting a little mafia. And if I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? Why are the Jews always trying to kill me if I preach circumcision like they do? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. It means exactly what you think it means. I hope they slip. Law. It's just as bad as hypocrisy. It's just as bad as sin being okay. It's adding to your salvation something that shouldn't be added. Grace is perfect. The cross is perfect. We sang a song about what Calvary did for us. Calvary the hill upon which Christ died is complete. We can't add to it, but we can live a life of thanksgiving because of it. That's what a sinless life looks like. That's what a life of being Change and transformed and wanting to be more like Christ is because you look at the cross, you see what it's done, how complete it is. Grace and an understanding of it brings holiness into a person's life. Holiness does not bring grace. Never has, never will. When I strive to be holy because God is holy and I only know that verse and I'm doing everything I can to be holier than everybody else around me and the competition is on, I never achieve, I never gain, and there's never grace. On the other hand, when you meditate on the grace of God and what he's done for you and how complete and perfect it is, you become holy. When you realize how much your wife loves you and cares for you and does all the things, you think about all the things she does, it makes you a better husband. It makes you want to serve her more. It makes you want to care for her and provide for her and do whatever you can. And likewise, as you think about your husband and the sacrifices he makes and the things he's done for you in the past, Makes you want to be a better wife, someone who serves their husband, cares for him. It's no different with Christ. We meditate, meditate on the things of God and meditate on the cross and what he's done for us and salvation. I mean, heaven, what else is there? It makes me want to be a better son, a better daughter, a better bride to him. Makes me more loyal. Makes me defend him more. Makes me on fire for my husband. As weird as that sounds coming from a guy. It does, though. 
I think about him and his love and his kindness. Jesus, Bo said that the other night. He goes, Jesus is really nice, wasn't he? I said, yeah, he was really nice. Seems almost sacrilegious to say something that simple about our Savior. He's a really nice guy. When we live in a world full of people that just aren't that nice, he is a really nice guy. And when Bo says that or when a kid says that, you know what they mean. That's someone I can trust completely. We had a, a moment the other night um, before bed, and I said, you know, if there's anybody out of, outside of our family, who do you trust? Who do you who do you think is just that nice guy or that nice gal or whatever? And, and uh, Mariah named somebody that it, I was like, who, who's that? And I'm not going to say the name because they're in the room right now. It's a young lady. I, said, I don't even, I didn't even, I think I knew her name, but I didn't know how long she'd been coming. Oh, just for a little bit, but I trust her. I said, more than all the other, well, I, I like them too, and I trust them too, but I I like this, this girl I trust completely, have no doubt about her. I'm like, interesting. What an impact this little 14-year-old girl has had on my daughter's life. I didn't even really, I mean, I kind of knew her name, but I didn't know her name. Amazing. Same for Bo. Well, I, I trust this one. And, and, and we went on from there, and it just really boosted him. Because it was grace. There was, they, they sensed Christ in them, you know? Anyway, love fulfills the law. When you have a love for Christ, it just explodes. It comes out of you. So that's the leaven. I promise we'll go a lot fast. See, that's why I did one. <laughs> We're almost done. I've gotten three verses done. We'll go faster. On this day, back in Exodus here, after I've told you how I want you to remember, on this day, you are going out in the month of Abib, and it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, when you go in to evict them, and you get their land, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. So completely get rid of all the leaven in your house, in your bread, and in the city or wherever you live, in your house, just get rid of all of it. So it's like a big mad dash. They take their drawers outside and they they symbolically go through it just to make there's, there's not a dust of leaven. Oh, that we do that with our lives, right? Is there any sin? Is there any sin at all? Is there any sin at all? You know, and get rid of it. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. Ah, now we know why. Because not everybody's going to be remembering this day. It's for the kids. It's for the kids to remember. It's to pass it on. It's to introduce them to it. That's why I want everybody to come to the baptisms. I don't think you understand what's happening when you bring your children to these things. You're exposing them. Dad, why are they going out into the water? Why are they doing that? What a great opportunity. That's what this is, an opportunity. Dad, how come we're not having fluffy bread? What's with the flat bread? Glad you asked. Because years ago, I, or generations ago, they, God delivered us with a strong and mighty hand, and we didn't have time to make the bread. We had to run and take it as is. And this is weird. It's weird. It's so flat, Dad. You know? 
and you talk to them about spiritual things. Why are they going out in the water? Well, see, the water represents the dirt, and they're kind of being buried and dying to their old self, and they're rising to new life in Christ. And it's it's symbolic. It shows that they've left their old life behind, and they're rising to new life in Christ. They're going to live for them the rest of their lives. And it's, 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 it's great, isn't it? Oh, that's really cool, Dad. I want to be baptized. Oh, you do? This is for them. Expose your kids to spiritual things. Expose them to it often. Give them opportunities to ask questions about those things. This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. It shall be a a sign to you on your hand and a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. Now that second part there where it talks about putting it on your hand and putting it on your forehead, well, if you go to Israel, they actually do this. They, they've taken this scripture and they've, uh, well, they've interpreted it in such a way that you actually take little bits of scripture, put it in a box, and you bind it to your forehead called a phylactery, and you tie it around your head, and then you put it on your hand. And you, they have big, long leather straps so everybody can see the leather strap. Look, I've got this. And they come to the wailing wall and they do their prayer. It's very obvious. Okay, it's not what he's talking about, though. They didn't have phylacteries. They weren't really supposed to bind boxes on their forehead. It meant it's supposed to affect every part of your life. It should be what's on the forefront of your mind. It should affect everything that you do. It should affect everything. My walk with Jesus in my life should affect my decision on everything that I do. Everything that I see in this world should be filtered through my biblical worldview. Everything should come from that. Understanding the book of Revelation, I see what's happening. We all do. And some of us are mad about it. Well, he did say these things must take place. So as as weird as it is, and as much as I'm not going to get something, which is interesting, on my forehead or in my hand, isn't that funny how Satan can only imitate? I want my word to be on the forefront of your mind, and I want it to be on your right hand. And then we go all the way to Revelation 13, 16, and Satan, the only imitator, has not ever had a creative thought in his mind. says, okay, well, I'm going to put a chip in their forehead or a chip in their hand, and that's the mark of the beast. Yeah, you know, genius, you know, only an imitator. As a Christian, as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a leader, as a citizen, I want that to be the first thing that I think of, the only thing that I think of. And everything that I do needs to go from that. That's who I am as a Christian. Everything. Verse 11, And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, which means he's going to do it. There's the second thing I want you to remember, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord All that opens the womb, that is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, males shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. It's a very important word. So it shall be when your son asks you, again, for the kids, do this in front of them so that they can see So when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this that you shall say to him? By by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, 
out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb with all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontless between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. In other words, it should be right in front of you. My Christianity should be right in front of my kids. They ought to be able to see it plain as day. It's not compartmentalized over here, and we pull it out on Sundays, and we pull it out on Wednesdays, and we pull it out during weddings, and we pull it out during funerals. But for the rest of the time, we're as carnal as everybody else. No, it should be out. What's the flatbread for? Oh, there's a firstborn male, Dad. I know what's going to happen next. We've got to redeem it, don't we? We do. You know, do you remember why? Well, yeah, because with a strong hand, and that happens generation after generation after generation, 2,000 years later, the Lamb of God rides in on a donkey. At the same time, the lambs are being sacrificed for the sins of the world or for the sins of the people of Israel. The Lamb of God that John said, "There's behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's coming at the same time. Everybody should be tying this together because of this memory right here. That's why Jesus, when he's on the donkey, comes in. He says, you should have known this day. How would they have known this day? Because you've been remembering it year after year after year after year. It is driven home. It is a part of who you are. You'll never, ever forget this. You shouldn't have. This redemption's neat. So many things here. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20, uh, 21, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled, purchased us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling or redeeming the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Redeemed. We were redeemed by Jesus. He's given us that message. That's what we tell people. Jesus paid for your sins. He redeemed you. Just like every firstborn had to be redeemed. Every son that was born, the firstborn, had to be redeemed. Redemption, redemption, redemption. You look up that word, blueletterbible.com. Remember I told you that before? Just do a word search on redemption. It's unbelievable. Redeem, 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 redeem. Amazing. You want to get a good handle on that word? Read all 127 verses that have that redeemed, redeemer, redemption in it. Titus chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Paul, writing to this young pastor, Titus, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things. Exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. That verse 14 is really important to me. That he has redeemed me from every lawless deed. Not some lawless deeds. It's not a partial redemption. It's paid in full. 
It's a big deal when you see your bill stamped with those big red letters, paid in full. Oh, they used to, in the olden days, have a mortgage burning party. When you made your last payment on your house, they'd stand out, invite all their neighbors over and everything, and they'd burn the mortgage. The only time I've ever seen that was on the Waltons. That's an old show. Hated that show. So boring, so gray. The whole show was terrible. Except I remember that one moment because he was about to burn the mortgage and one of the neighbors needed help and he decided to put a second mortgage on his house to help his neighbor. And I was like, what's that mean? What's happening here? And my dad explained to me what they were about to do. He was about to be debt-free and burn his mortgage, but for the sake of his neighbor, he went ahead and... Interesting. The Waltons, who would have thunk it, right? Some of you younger people are like, the Waltons? I don't even, you don't need to watch it. It's really not that great a show. John Boy just drove me crazy, that guy. Something. <sighs> Every lawless deed paid in full. I have no debt against me. There is no sin against me. Past, present, and future have all been paid for at the cross. When Satan tries to accuse me of yesterday or today or tomorrow of the things I do, and I will sin again, unfortunately, I know that about myself, I'm still paid in full. He's paid it. Please remember that. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 through 19. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's own work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so Paul pulls those things all together right there. You weren't redeemed with gold. You weren't redeemed like this picture in the Old Testament, chapter 13. You were redeemed with the Redeemer that these all these redemptions pointed to. Every lamb that was sacrificed, every firstborn that was ever had to be redeemed was all a, a shadow pointing to the one who would cast that shadow, Jesus Christ. And he explains that in Hebrews. It's a beautiful thing to know that these were all pointing this whole ceremony, all these firstborns was all pointing to and reminding us of and gearing us up and getting us prepared for the Lamb, not many, the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world, Jesus. Revelation 5, 8 through 10, John is looking and seeing that no one is worthy to open the scroll. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Guys, that's us. Chapters four and five is us in heaven singing this, seeing this. When John wrote this, Revelation chapter 5, you were in the crowd, I was in the crowd if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Outside of time and space, there we were. Amazing. Hard to get your mind around it. We'll finish up here. Then it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. 
For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Interesting. God says, they're not ready to fight yet. Don't take them by way of the Philistines. They're going to fight. Let's take them a different way by way of the wilderness. I want you to plant them. Chapter 14 tells us this. I'm jumping ahead of myself. But I want you to put them between this cliffy rock and this cliffy rock over here and the Red Sea. And I want you to plant them there. So they have nowhere else to go. Nowhere else to go. In other words, I want to increase their faith. I've got to train these people, teach these people to trust me. I'm not going to take them to war because that's going to freak them out. And they're going to want to go back to Egypt. And I don't want that. I understand. He understands. We're dust. He understands our frailty. He understands how much we can handle and how much we can't handle. Please remember that. When he says that in the New Testament, he never gives us more than we can bear. He means that. I was going to take them to the Philistines. That's the most direct route, but that's not the best for them. I'm going to take them this way because I need to increase their faith. So we're going to start with an inanimate object like, I don't know, a body of water that's too big to swim across. And I'm going to open it up, and I'm going to let them walk across, and they're going to see my strong hand in a different way. And that's going to increase their faith. Run into any barriers lately? Anything that's not necessarily spiritual, but something physical or something that's happening. It's like, this is in the way, and I'm trapped, and there's no way out. Behind me, they want to kill me. And off to my left is a rock. Off to my right is a rock. And all the thing before me, oh, we're going to die. God wants to show you something. Let me increase your faith. So he takes him that way. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under a solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. Don't leave me in Egypt, Joseph said. I know we're not going to be here forever. 400 and some years later, they're leaving. This wilderness, I've got two minutes. I've got to cut. I got to hit this. This is why we didn't do 14. This wilderness is supposed to be a two-week journey. I want to teach them about the Red Sea. We're going to cross that. We're going to come up to the Jordan. We're going to cross that. We're going to go to Jericho. We're going to march around that. And I'm going to increase their faith step by step. And if they just believed him, if they just walked with him, if they just trusted him, it would have been a two-week journey. But they're not there yet. They're carnal. John chapter 3, verses 5 through 7 says, Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit and spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You've got to be born of the Spirit. That's what salvation is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 15, Paul writing to a church of believers, moving in the gifts of the Spirit, mind you, and very proud of it, I might add, he has to write this letter to them to correct their carnality. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. 
But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. He's leading them. Spiritual people can see far better than the carnal people can. And if you're not spiritual, you're not going to see things correctly. You're not going to judge things rightly. You're not going to understand. It will be confusing to you. In 1 Corinthians 3, one chapter later, verses 1 through 3, Paul says to this group, after he tells them, you got to be spiritual. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. And these are believers, and they're saved, and they're moving in the gifts of the Spirit. But Paul can't talk to them about spiritual things because they're carnal believers. It's a dangerous place. Guys, this wilderness that the children of Israel, they're saved. They've been water baptized through the Red Sea. They're going to walk around, but they're going to walk around for 40 years because they don't trust God. They don't think spiritually. They don't have, they're not increasing their faith They're not trusting him with everything. They don't understand that he's for them and not against them. They're not believing him at his word. And so they spend 40 years going around the same mountain, complaining and moaning and groaning about their circumstances, second-guessing their thought to even leave the world behind, that maybe they should just go back. It was easier there. Oh, I remember how much fun I used to have. Oh, the friends that I left behind in Egypt. Oh, the garlic and the leeks and the onions, they complain. The melons, oh, the melons. Do you remember getting beat with a whip? Do you remember crying out to God? Do you remember asking for deliverance? Well, he's done it. And with a mighty hand, he's brought you out of that horrible situation, don't you think? If you remember that with a mighty hand, he can lead you on? Carnal. Verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 3 says, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able. You are still carnal. For where there is envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Paul expected more. Don't act like mere men. Act, Act better than that. Act like a son or daughter of the Most High God. Walk in spiritual. Be spiritual. Think spiritual. And finally, Romans 8, 5 through 7. For those who live according to the flesh, well, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. I can't tell you how many times people ask me, I just need peace. I need more peace. Well, stop being carnal. Peace cannot come from carnality. It never will. He's said it in his word. Now I need to believe it. To be carnally minded is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. So if you want life and peace, you have to be spiritually minded. It can come no other way. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. When I'm carnal, I'm an enemy. I don't think of myself that way. I don't think anybody does. Nobody says, I'm going to be an enemy of God today and be carnal. It just ends up being that way. All of a sudden, I'm not thinking like he's thinking. I'm not seeing like he's seeing. I don't have the mind of Christ, or at least I'm not following it. 
I want, God wants, his word wants. He wants to bring us to maturity out of that carnality into a spiritual walk. But that's a decision each and every one of us has to make on our own. You can't make people be spiritual. Verse 20. So they took their journey from Succoth and camped at Etham, at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as not to go by day and night, or so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar or cloud of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. It was always, always there. In a desert, it's nice. And you think of this pillar of cloud. It's a cloud, but it's spreading. So there's this enormous shadow in the desert covering two to three million people. And wherever God went, as long as well, you didn't have a choice. I mean, if you find yourself in the sun, you were in the wrong spot. Oh, you know, stay within the shadow. We're good. What a beautiful thing to know that God goes before us and leads us. And I can know exactly where I am. Thy word is a light unto my or lamp unto my thy word is a light unto my path and a light unto my feet. Is that right? Reverse it. I don't know, something like Psalm 119, 105. That kind of memorized stuff. Anyway, I can know where I am. And then the and in the night, when the desert gets freezing and it drops 50 degrees, there's this beautiful fire keeping everybody warm and no one has to be scared of the dark. God's original nightlight, you know? Beautiful. And he always goes before. He always leads them. And he's still doing that for us today. He's still leading and guiding us. He'll take us where he wants us to go. And I don't have to worry about anything. He's my father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this chapter 13. Boy, am I glad we didn't try 14. We never made it, Lord. You knew. I appreciate you, God. I know it's simple to say something like that. It almost sounds irreverent, but I don't mean it that way, and you know that. Thank you for being nice, for loving us, for caring us, and forgive us for whenever we doubt that, whenever we're not sure. That we, there's no better place than to walk in your shadow. There is no better place than to walk in your light. There's no safer place than to be right where you are. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to grow in our faith. As the nation of Israel is going to grow in their faith and they're going to learn to walk with you, God, I pray that we'd, well, we'd learn faster, that we'd do better, that we'd hear your voice and we'd obey it and we'd walk in it, trusting you knowing that if I can walk on waves, I can walk on waves if you say so. We love you, Lord. Thank you for these people. I pray that you'd bless them, bless the kids, the teachers, and bless our trip home. Some of us are traveling, some of us are traveling afar. Clear up. So, Lord, watch out for them. Those who are watching online, Lord, I pray that you'd bless them too, and I thank you for them. Help them with all of their needs and all of their prayer requests. And by the way, if you're watching online, please comment or something if you need prayer. We'd be glad to pray with you afterwards. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.